In the first week of January, um, we went back to Milton Keynes as a family. We went to attend the funeral of a close friend called Jill. Uh, I called Jill Ginge for years. This came uh, from an evening led by one of the new wine leaders called Bruce Collins. Bruce has a really significant prophetic gift. And towards the end of the evening, Bruce started to call out people for whom in the congregation he believed God had given him a prophetic word. So he pointed out at Jill in the congregation and said, I've got a word for that ginger lady back there. And Jill did this, honestly, she... Well, I'm not ginger, it can't be for me. And so Bruce kept on pointing at her. And she said to me afterwards, I'm not ginger, I'm strawberry blonde. Or at least that's what it said on the bottle. But ginger she became and ginger she remained to me ever after. And believe me, she responded often in kind. There are so many stories I could tell you about our friend Jill. Like the time that she told me she was getting a new car with great excitement, I asked, oh, great, what kind is it? And she said, blue. (laughs) But I wanted to mention her because Jill had the most extraordinary gift with people. Jill could talk to anyone, anywhere. Jill could talk to you for 10 or 15 minutes and end up knowing more about you than many of your closest friends. She was just that kind of person. She just had an amazing gift with people. As Catherine, my former colleague, said in the eulogy, there were things that Jill knew about her that nearly no one else did. Jill had such compassion. She was utterly trustworthy. She held everything so private. And she made space in her life for people for the broken particularly and the lonely. And uh, she would fight really hard for people to be treated fairly. Why do I mention Jill? Well, simply because it took a while for Jill to recognize her gifts with people are are God-given. That it wasn't just how she was, but that God's presence and power in her life had taken something that was already there and transformed it making it a means of God's grace to so very many people. Now, Paul calls the gifts charismata, where the word charis is the word that means grace. So when Paul talks about spiritual gifts, about charismata, he's talking about all of the many different ways in which God's grace becomes present and available to us. Whether that's through an individual like our friend Jill, sharing compassion and mercy with others. Whether that's through a prophetic word shared in a gathering like we've heard tonight, but also as Bruce Collins did with Jill that evening. We're talking about lots of different ways in which God's grace becomes present, available and powerful in our midst. So we're looking in our series this term at what it means to offer our whole selves as a living sacrifice in view of God's mercy, in view of everything that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Um, 
our passage tonight is the beginning of Paul giving lots of examples of what that actually means in practice, of what it means to offer our living sacrifice, about what it means to refuse to conform to the pattern of the world. Those first two verses in Romans 12 are really the title, they're the introduction for a whole section that runs right the way through to Romans 15, 13. It's one of Paul's great therefores, which often introduce a whole new topic. This is the first way, the first way of offering a living sacrifice, the first way of not conforming to the world. First major point, first major point. We need to know ourselves as we are. We need to know ourselves as we are. Paul writes, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. He's telling us to have a mirror moment. Not when we look at ourselves through admire what an amazing gift we are to the world, but when we look at ourselves in the mirror as we really are. It's sober judgment. It's not sobering judgment as on the morning after the night before. It's not making harsh judgments after we've screwed up. It's not as Zoom allows us to do, touching up or improving our own appearance through filters. I I will not name and shame publicly which of my colleagues discovered this really early in the pandemic. It's being able to look ourselves in the mirror and know ourselves as we really are. And that, Paul tells us, means neither trashing yourself nor exalting yourself. So think of yourself with sober judgment, he continues, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. That's not an amount of faith. It is the reality of our faith. Knowing ourselves as we really are means having a basis to measure ourselves against. That basis is the life of Jesus. The love God has shown us through him. That's the faith God has shared equally with each of us. So we're to look ourselves in the mirror and measure ourselves against Jesus. Remembering that he died for us. Remembering that it was love for us that prompted the Father to send the Son. Remembering those truths. That we are beloved recipients of grace that we are children on whom the Father has lavished grace. Remembering those truths, we dare to see ourselves as we really are. And that means seeing ourselves as those who are broken, yes, but also as those who are growing in holiness. We often talk of ourselves as sinners, and in many ways that's right. I wish there was a word that meant I could say I was a forgiven Because that's what I am. That's what you are through the love of God that's been given you in Jesus Christ. You are no longer a sinner. You are a forgiven. You are a recipient of grace. You are part of his family. So when we have that mirror moment, yes, yes, we look and we see that sometimes we still fall short. But also see where you are growing. See where God's grace is obviously bearing fruit. In other words, seeing yourself in the light of grace, not shame. Seeing yourself not in a star's spotlight, but also not even in an interrogator's spotlight, 
but seeing yourself as God sees you. For that is seeing yourself as you really are. I wonder what you're most likely to do, to exalt yourself or to trash yourself. Some rare folk even manage to do both on consecutive days. But the Lord, Paul suggests, wants neither. He wants an honest, hard look at ourselves. Yes, inviting the Holy Spirit to show us where there is really good stuff in our lives, but also to put his finger tenderly on what he longs to change. If you exalt yourself, ask for greater humility and a greater sense of God's holiness because that reverence will help you to know where you're falling short. If you tend to trash yourself, ask for great mercy to be poured out so that maybe those old wounds or those old voices that keep coming back to bite you, that scar tissue in your soul can be healed and transformed. The Holy Spirit does convict us But the Holy Spirit is like a surgeon with a scalpel. The wound is only as sharp and as deep as it needs to be to do the surgery that's necessary. The enemy is like a bully with a bludgeon that just keeps hitting you for the sake of it. The Holy Spirit does cut us, sometimes cuts us deep. But that's so that we can be healed, so that we can be transformed after we've been forgiven. He has no desire to keep us low, no desire to keep beating us up. So if you look in the mirror and you just feel like you're being beaten over the head and the heart with a bludgeon, that's not, that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us. He gives us what Paul calls a godly repentance. And the thing about a godly repentance is that it leaves no regret. So the Holy Spirit, like that surgeon with a scalpel, uh, cuts, yes, cuts, deals with it, and then heals it. He doesn't just keep walloping us over the head for no reason. So the scar tissue in your soul, those those old wounds, those old voices that keep coming back to bite you, pray for mercy to be poured out so that you can be healed and transformed. Transform it so that you are as gentle with yourself as the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit convicts not to condemn but to liberate. The Holy Spirit convicts not to condemn but to set us free and heal us. He has no desire to keep us down. He wants to lift us to our feet. He wants to fill our hearts with his presence and his grace. He wants to transform, both exalting and trashing ourselves are significant obstacles to growing in grace. Second way we're to offer our living sacrifice. We need to think and be more like the Messiah. Vincent O'Donovan, a Roman Catholic missionary, wrote a really extraordinary book called Christianity Rediscovered. 
He was a missionary to the Maasai who became massively frustrated. Why? Well, he'd been serving on a mission station for quite a number of years. They'd been doing all kinds of really good social action, lots of good primary health care. Though they were serving, they were trying to earn the right to speak, but no one was coming to faith. His time there was coming to an end. And he resolved to go and try to speak to the Messiah about the gospel. They weren't coming to him. He was going to go to them. And at the first meeting, when he explained why he had come to speak to them, the Maasai were bemused. They were even slightly offended. They basically said, well, if this is why you came, why have you spent so long doing other stuff? If this is why you came, why have you taken so long to speak to us about this? But dialogue began. After some time, I think lasting some months, learning about the gospel, the Maasai wrong-footed O'Donovan again. They had a private meeting from which he was excluded, where they debated whether or not to become Christians. And once they'd made a decision as one body, they all accepted the decision. And they were all baptized at the same time. Once everyone had had their say, the tribe made a decision and they all, without exception, even if they had argued against it, abided by that decision. We too need to think more like the Messiah. We need to think us before me. Honestly, if we'd been part of the Messiah tribe, some of us would have been out there with placards saying, not in my name. You can't make this decision for me. And yet their sense of who they are, their sense of being a body together meant that no one would dissent from that decision once it was made. That sense of oneness sounds really weird to us in the West. We expect the whole world to get reshaped around our choices. One of the features of nearly every consumer product now is the owner's ability to customize it to the very nth degree. And that the most important aspect of our culture to very many people is the right of the individual. The right of the individual to choose how they want to live. The right of the individual even to choose their own pronouns. So that language is defined not by the community but by the individual. So much of our culture is all me, often without much sense of us at all. Yet the togetherness, the oneness of the Messiah is much closer to what Paul's talking about here in verses 4 and 5. He writes, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. That sense of solidarity, that sense of mutual belonging, that sense of us before me, has so withered in our culture, it's almost difficult for us to comprehend how a group of people could make such a decision together and that it should be binding on everyone, even if they disagreed. That everyone would willingly accept it, even if they disagreed. But for the Maasai, it's always us before me. Maybe for them even that me has no meaning without us. Paul's saying we too 
we need that same us before me to see ourselves as part of a greater whole, a greater whole created by our shared love for Jesus, that we recognize one another as brothers and sisters, as we were learning last term from Romans 8.29, conform to the image of his son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, Romans 8.29, that we recognize one another as those who together call God Father, and therefore, as part of one family, one body. Romans 8.15, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. That means we must recognize our need of one another. For the diversity of organs, tissue types, muscle, bone, ligaments are all needed for the body to function well. They're all needed for the body to function well and none of them have a separate function outside the body. The eye doesn't make sense outside the body. The foot doesn't make sense outside the body. They have no separate function. That we must recognize not just our need of one another, but also our obligation to one another. Second half of verse five, each member belongs to all the others. Paul is saying that we need to learn to think us before me. And this too is part of the living sacrifice we're called to bring. To be much more Maasai, to embrace the solidarity and mutual belonging that comes from us all calling God Abba. That comes from being Jesus' brothers and sisters. That means doing us before me. And honestly, here we're right up against our culture. We see that culture at work in the church, the consumerist, individualist culture. All of us, we tend to measure church by what we're getting out of it, rather than by what we're putting in. That's me before us. We give to the church when we're pleased and stop or reduce it when we're not. That's me before us. We let our taste about worship determine sometimes whether we really see each other as brothers and sisters. Again, that's me before us. I heard stories during the pandemic of Christians finding they could manage without the body. They were listening to podcasts and, and shopping for the best worship available globally. Just think about that phrase. They were shopping for the best worship available globally. And that was enough for some. I'm sure some of that was motivated by disappointment with others, disappointment with the church. I'm sure that's right. I've never belonged to a church that hasn't been disappointing in at least one way or another. I've also belonged to loads of churches in which the glory of God has been at work. And still people have been disappointed. I've been in lots of churches where healing has been present and people have still been disappointed. I know that we could do much better in all kinds of ways as a church. But that consumerist attitude does not square with the solidarity and mutual belonging that Paul is describing here. That's not just me before us, it's me without us almost. It's Western individualism, it's consumerism, much more than it is Romans 12, 4 and 5. It's a refusal to see ourselves as part of the body, 
We need to think much more Maasai. We need to think us before me. Third way we're to offer our living sacrifice from this passage. We're to know and use our gifts in the body. We're to know and use our gifts in the body. So Paul goes directly from talking about solidarity and mutual belonging into talking about knowing and using our gifts. He's saying this is how we do solidarity. This is how we offer our living sacrifice, by both receiving from the gifts of others and using our gifts to bless others in return. Now, if you're likely to trash yourself, you may well wonder if you've got a grace gift to offer. You may well wonder whether your contribution to the body can ever really matter. Well, I want to tell you about two other people whom I met at Jill's funeral, again, for the first time in years. One is someone I'll call Helen. Helen has a rare chromosomal abnormality that has limited her stature and given her really odd mannerisms. She has significant learning difficulties. And though I think she's now in her late 30s, she will never live independently. It would be so easy to look at Helen and think, there's someone with no grace gifts. There's someone who will never be able to give to the body. We might not say it out loud because it's not polite, but we would probably think it. You don't have to tell you, Helen is amazing with people. She is endlessly interested in others. She asks simple, direct questions, questions that we wouldn't dare ask. I remember her once asking someone in a wheelchair, why are you in a wheelchair? And somebody was really affirmed and told her much of their life story because actually she showed enough interest to ask. She's brilliant at spotting those who are new because it's someone new to meet. She is great at welcoming people. And wherever she goes, and I have seen her in lots of different contexts, wherever she goes, Helen always connects with people. And the thing is, she connects with people and draws loving kindness out of nearly everyone as they respond to her. So Helen is a gifted person who gives far more to the church than she receives. And as I remembered at the funeral far too late, she is somebody who gives intense vice-like hugs that make you have to check your ribs afterwards. Every one of us, every one of us, whoever we are, is gifted by God, gifted in different ways to bring God's grace to others. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The other I want to mention is a, a guy called Oliver. He is an accountant by training, which isn't a bad thing. I've got quite a number of accountants in my family. It's not, it's not inherently a bad thing. His work all, actually, if you are an accountant or know anyone's accountant, we do need a new treasurer. I'll just, just throw that out there. He's an accountant by training. His work all surrounded the owning and leasing of supermarkets. It would be easy just to ask someone like Oliver to use their work skills in the church. And of course, as I just mentioned, that is a great way to serve. But Oliver thanked me 
for encouraging him to explore prophecy 15 years ago. We set up a group uh, with my wife, Sarah, and others, and actually we started to explore prophecy together. It was completely different to anything he had ever done before. I can't remember how and when we discern that, but it's become a massively significant part of his life and ministry. It is key to how he's serving the Lord in retirement. He is helping to discern the way forward for a national mission agency for whom he's a trustee. God gave him a significant picture before the pandemic, which transformed the way that they thought about their ministry. And now the way that they now think about their ministry is massively significant and relevant for the post-pandemic season. He was so excited about how God had used him to redirect their paths as a mission agency. He was bubbling over with it. Now, I'm not sure many people would have looked at Helen and thought, there's a key community builder. But the Lord Jesus did. So don't rule yourself out of the game. I'm not sure many people would have looked at Oliver, the accountant, in his pinstripe three-piece suit, getting up onto the uh, train to commute up to London. Not many would have thought, looked at him and thought, there's a prophet. There's someone who's going to become really gifted at hearing the Lord, discerning his heart, and reshaping the whole future of a mission agency. But the Lord Jesus did. So don't assume that God might not have very different plans for you. Plans to grow you in entirely new ways. And remember, this is all about God's grace. All about the very many different ways God's grace becomes present and available through grace gifts. If we want to see ever more of God's grace and power at work amongst us, and surely we do. Surely we do. Am I alone in thinking surely we do? then we have to know and use our grace gifts. Let me sum it up so far. It's part of our living sacrifice, mentioned first before lots of other things. Paul teaches us to see ourselves as we are, neither exalting ourselves nor trashing ourselves. Paul teaches us to be more like the Messiah, to become us before me, to embrace solidarity that belonging to the body of Christ requires. And Paul teaches us to know and use our grace gifts as our living sacrifice within the body. So as I'm contractually obliged to say, so what does all this mean for us today? Well, first, first, having the humility to say yes having the humility to say yes. It takes humility and trust to step into something new. Honestly, and it's even more true as we get older, we don't like being put in places where we don't feel competent. We don't like being put in places where we're not sure how things go. It's a little bit like getting onto the dance floor at a wedding the older you get, the more reluctant you are speaking personally. When I was a student, I really liked, I really liked going to a disco. Now, not so much. 
Now it takes a long time and it takes the dance floor to be very, very busy before I will dare step onto the dance floor. And partly there's some scar tissue here, if I could just explain that. The last time we had a great dance at our, our last church, Sarah, my wife, finally persuaded me onto the dance floor. And when I finally, you know, I was sort of reconnecting with rhythm from decades ago, I looked up and realized that three members of our congregation were filming me on their camera phones. So, so I am reluctant, really reluctant. And yet it's that kind of reluctance that we have to overcome. Because if we will only do what we're competent at, we'll never do anything new. If we'll only do what we're comfortable doing, we'll never take a risk. It takes humility, it takes courage to say yes. We don't want it to be difficult for God to release us into new things. We don't want it to be difficult for God to release new things through us. Otherwise, we're just really saying God can do anything he wants in us and through us as long as he's done it before. And then nothing, nothing new will happen. Then nothing, no breakthrough will come. Then nothing like what happened in Oliver's life can happen in ours. Because we won't have the humility and the courage, the humility to stuff up. We need the humility to say, actually, I'm going to have a go. And it might not be brilliant. If I tried to dance in front of you now, I would embarrass everyone in the room. Trust me. But we have to have the humility to say, I don't mind making a mistake if that's what it takes to learn to do things in a new way. I know that I've told this story before, but on several occasions in my ministerial career, I've come with a sermon prepared and felt convicted during the worship, I needed to talk about something else. And that's a real tussle for me. Because, you know, I've got something really prepared. I know it'll be okay. And actually now you're, so, why did I have to prepare that one? That's always a question I ask. Why did you want me to prepare that one if you didn't want me to preach it? That's another story. But in that moment, I have a choice to make. Will I obey and try and speak on the new subject and not do such a good job, but at least I know that I'm obeying, or will I take the safe option and preach something I've already prepared and I know is good? That's the question. Have I got the humility to obey even if I look bad? To obey even if I, don't, will, I won't do things as well? It's the humility to say, yes, Lord, my hands are open, my heart is open, to the new thing that you might want to give me, to the new thing you might want to do through me. I want your glory so much that being comfortable are set aside. I want your glory and your kingdom to come so much that I will do something I'm not competent at. I will step into the new thing. I will have a go. That's the kind of heart that we need if we want to see God come in great glory. We have to have the humility to go, go for new things. Sometimes we want to be in control. We don't want to look foolish. We don't want to 
Well, sometimes we just want to manage without depending on God. We want to do something for God rather than with God. But if these, if these grace gifts are God's provision for the church, if these grace gifts are God's provision for the church, we are shortchanging ourselves if we say no to them. And we are shortchanging our brothers and sisters. We're shortchanging the world around us. Oliver had the humility and trust to step into something entirely new. And God is now using him in retirement, years on, to shape and give direction to a national mission agency. So where might God be challenging you to have the humility and the trust, to have the courage to step into something entirely new? Where is God calling you onto the dance floor and telling you to pick up the rhythm and try and throw some shapes? Second, in what ways do we need to be more like the Messiah? Need to be more us before me? Whether that's through joining a small group or coming to the devoted gathering, whether it's making time to serve on a team, because that's always costly. It's always challenging to find time. And yet so very often, so very often we grow much more much more quickly and much more deeply, we grow much more when we're giving to others, when we're serving others. Whether it's making time to serve on a team or to offer your existing skills to take on a role like treasurer. Whether it's recommitting, whether it's recommitting to being part of Highfield, not just an observer. Where and how might God want you to become more us before me? And maybe if during the pandemic you've been a in a me before us or even a me without us mode? Is this the time to recommit to belonging? Recommit to being us before me? And third and finally, believe you have got grace gifts. Believe you have them or that God will give them. Believe that God longs to use you to encourage and build up the body. Believe that you can be, yes, you can be, a means of bringing God's grace to others. Yes, even you. We're all called to contribute to the health and well-being of the body. That means all of us, all of us. However much we may tell ourselves that we can't, however much we may tell ourselves that we're rubbish, those lies are lies we need to stop believing. Remember my friend Helen, with all of her disabilities, her chromosomal abnormalities, and yet such a gift to the body. Remember Oliver growing to serve well beyond his comfort zone. Chartered accountancy does not prepare you for prophecy. Remember Jill, with whom I began, seeing her natural gifts transformed through God's, God's love. So we need to take a stand on this. You have, or you will be given, grace gifts. Learn what they are and use them. Use them for the good of the body. Use them for God's glory. And have the humility, the grace, and the courage to step out. If you do, if you do, you will be amazed, as my friend Oliver was, at what God will do in and through you.